Alright, so Philippians chapter 3, and lots and lots of good stuff. Gosh, I always think I'm going to forget my glasses up here, but I remembered them. And how's everybody doing? Yeah? Halfway through the week? Not bad, right? Okay. Get to enjoy two more days at work to be a light to whoever those people are, right? And then you have the weekend. Alright. So Philippians chapter 3. Um, I love the things that Paul says here. This is such a refreshing book to me because it really shows the heart of Paul. You just kind of sense uh, just what's coming out of his heart, I think. Uh, like in Galatians, he was all fired up. Ephesians is a little bit more towards being fired up and yet being filled with this, this fascination with Christ. Now you see that fascination with Christ increase in Philippians and then in Colossians, it's going to be like all this glory explosion of Christ. So um, I love seeing that transition. And the way I always look at that is if those who know him best are that excited about him, then I should work on being more excited about him myself, right? Because they know him better than I do and they literally willing to die for the guy, right? So I want to know him better like that, and we're going to see Paul actually use that phrase about this tremendous joy of knowing him, this tremendous joy of knowing him. Now, we say things like that when we're like somebody's birthday party, we'll give a toast, it's such a joy to know him. But Paul's saying that uh, many years after ever seeing him and in terrible conditions of life, and he's still able to be super excited about knowing Christ. So I think that says a lot. Let's open in prayer and get going into the book of Philippians. Father, in Jesus' name, we present ourselves to you this evening, Lord, to receive your word, to grow from your word, to see your heart more clearly, Lord, and we pray that uh, this wouldn't be an academic lesson, Lord, but it would be a drawing closer to you so that we would be conformed more to your image. We would speak and walk and act much more like you than we've ever done before. So, Lord, have... Have your way in all of our hearts and be glorified through this teaching, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So Philippians chapter 3. Um, I was going to count the amount of stops we're making, and then I forgot. But uh, we're going to be, gosh, there, there's Galatians 6. We're going to be in 1 John 1. We're going to be in Romans 8, Matthew 16. We're going to be in... Um, Romans 1 again, Romans 5, Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 13, 2 Corinthians 11, Hebrews 7, Mark 9, and 1 Corinthians 15. So just put your fingers there, and uh, we'll be going uh, to those spots. All right? All right. Okay, so here we go. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Now he says, write the same things to you. So that means let's investigate the first two chapters. What are these same things? Uh, the best I could come up with that fits the whole theme of his joy is this. It's from chapter 1, 27 to 30. That's where he said, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm abstinent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you it's salvation, and that's from God. For to you it's been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. So as he brought that theme of joy and suffering, he says, hey, um, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, uh, but for you it's safe. And so I think his message there is suffering is not a sign that God has forsaken you. Suffering is not a sign that God's not actively involved in your life. Sometimes we pray for miraculous deliverance from suffering but I would say what I try to always remember is that God has shown through every page of the scripture that God actually uses us for each other. 
um, in, our, in our sufferings and our joys. You know, we're to rejoice when people rejoice. We're to grieve when they grieve. And we have been the instrument of God uh, throughout all of redemptive history uh, for his purposes. So should we just remember that uh, we should be praying about, Lord, you know, who can I show up for today? You know, what, 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 what can I do to, to play my part in this redemptive plan for people? Uh, verse 2, sign that you might have on your fence. Paul says, beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. That might be on your fence too. Beware of the mutilation. Probably not that one though, right? Beware of the mutilation. What's he talking about with the mutilation? It's something that he held sacred before. It's circumcision. But now that circumcision is neither profitable nor unprofitable, in fact, I think uh, one of the terms we use for our faith, Christianity, is that it's circumcision neutral. It doesn't matter if you get it or not. You know, uh, we still give it to infants today for the sake of hygiene and things like that. But it's certainly nothing towards righteousness or obedience anymore. We're circumcision neutral. So he says, beware of the mutilation because people were still trying to circumcise children for righteousness. Still trying to say, we've got to stay with this Abraham uh, command here. So he says, beware of the mutilation for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. So who are those who are counted as circumcised now? All who worship God in the spirit. Think of, think of the um, woman at the well, right? She asked questions about worship, and, and, and Jesus' answer was, it doesn't matter if you're in Jerusalem or on this mountain. God is looking for those who worship in spirit and in truth, right? So location doesn't matter anymore. Circumcision doesn't matter anymore. Uh, it's, you have to worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh, so, <clears throat> though I also, verse 4, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. So what he means by confidence in the flesh is, <clears throat> if you look at your life, could you face God based on your own righteousness? Can you have confidence in your own flesh facing God? He says, if you think you could have had confidence in the flesh, I more so. And what he's going to say is that he has no confidence in his flesh, even though he has more reasons to be confident in his flesh. Those are not really reasons. Well, here's the, what he, the reasons that he gives. He says, I'm circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, meaning of the highest level of obedience to the law, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. So you want to know how fired up I was about God's law? If anybody said they were free from God's law, I persecuted them, right? Those were the Christians, okay? Concerning righteousness, which is in the law, I was blameless. All right, now, as far as being circumcision neutral, I'm going to refer you to uh, Galatians that we covered a few weeks back, chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, verse 15 Paul says very succinctly in that verse, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but rather a new creation. It matters that you're a new creation, does not matter if you're circumcised or not. If you wonder what the big deal he's making over circumcision, you've you got to remember, this was way back in Genesis like 15. This is way back. And they've been following it all the way through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons, and right on through the, the kings and the judges. And it's, they, they've been circumcising everybody since Israel became a nation. Israel was not known as a nation without circumcision. It was always with it. So this is major news that Paul's trying to break to them, that circumcision is no longer a part of their life or a necessary part of their life. So he gives his credentials. He's saying, listen... I'm trying to tell you, you cannot rely on your credentials, your own fleshly accomplishments, because if that were the case, then I would stand out above everybody else, he's saying. And he gives his resume of why. So based on Paul's credentials, this should have brought him worldly, this could bring him worldly happiness and acceptance because of his great achievements. But he says in verse 6, 
that actually it's uh, verse 8. He says that he counts them all as rubbish. Anybody look up that Greek word rubbish lately? You're going to see this word, dung, okay, manure, feces. Okay, I count it all that, uh, all these accomplishments. It's the equivalent of, of human waste now compared to the greatness of knowing Christ. So, so he, he mentions his accomplishments, his achievements, and he says compared to knowing Christ, it's all loss. And now um, John, the Apostle John, now he gives a different type of credential in 1 John. So this is our stop in 1 John. And I want you to hear the credentials he gives. It does not have to do with righteousness. It doesn't have to do with proving that, you know, if, um, if anybody would be right with God based on how they live their life, it would be me. But listen to the new credential, the credentials that Paul's driving at that matter and John expresses here in 1 John chapter 1, first four verses. There he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. So what are the credentials of John? He says, listen, you should consider what I have to say because I've seen him, I've heard him. He says, I've touched him, okay? And now I declare him, okay? So I'm not going off a of hearsay. I'm not going off of uh, somebody else's account of something that happened. He says, I'm the guy that if this were brought to a court of law, the judge would ask to hear from me about this because I'm an eyewitness, I'm an ear witness, I'm a hand witness. I've seen him, heard him, touched him. I was there, okay? I was trained by him. I was in conversations with him. He sat me down and taught me and instructed me and entrusted me with his message to tell the world. I know this guy, okay? I was charged with the care of his mother upon his death. And I was there when he rose from the dead. I was there when he appeared many different times. I was fishing on a lake when he cooked me breakfast one day after his resurrection, okay? I know this person and this is what I have to say. He's from the beginning. And I've seen him, I've heard him, and I've touched him. In his gospel that he writes, he'll say that he's the word that was at the beginning. Just like he starts this one with, in the beginning. He starts both his gospel and his first letter with, let's talk about the very beginning. And as he talks about the beginning, he talks about Jesus. And as he calls Jesus the word or the logos, he'll say, that logos, that word that's Jesus, was with God, and he is God. So now we know there's a unique relationship that doesn't exist with any one of us. I can't say that I'm with you and I am you. Okay, but Jesus can say that about him and his father. Just like Jesus can say this. When they said, show us the father, he's able to say, don't you know if you've seen me, you've seen the father? Okay, so if any one of you said, hey, show me your father. And I said, don't you know if you've seen me, you've seen my father? You'd be like, he's lost it. Okay, he's officially lost it. Okay, but Jesus can actually say that. Just like it could be said, he was with God and he is God. Okay, that he and the Father are one and yet he's going to pray and communicate with his Father. Okay, these are both ands. All of, it, all of it's true in, their, in its essence. So Paul's saying, listen, I had these credentials. I was the Pharisee of Pharisees. I was uh, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of Pharisees, all of this. And now it's all literally crap compared to what I know now. Compared to what I know now, it's all garbage. And then it's just like John saying, listen, I want your joy to be full. So how do I make your joy full? Well, I'm going to share with you that which was from the beginning. I've seen him, 
heard them, I've touched them, and now I'm declaring them. Why? Because if you end up knowing them, then your joy is going to be full. And that's why I'm writing this to you, he says, so your joy can be full. Now, so Paul and John share this equation that knowing Jesus results in joy. Results in joy. All right, now, with John saying this, I'm an eyewitness, an ear witness, a hand witness, and all of this, I think that that's helped me in apologetics so much because the fact that atheism, their, their whole standard of their worldview is that there is no God. Well, because they use a negative statement to represent their worldview, and it's literally impossible to prove a negative statement. You can't prove something that's negative. You can't prove that there's not something. Like when an atheist says to me, there's no God, you simply say, how do you know he's not sipping lemonade behind Jupiter right now? Can you prove that? And they're not going to be able to do a thing about that. They cannot prove he's not sipping lemonade, not only behind Jupiter, but in any other galaxy or any other thing. And because he says he's the invisible God, now the atheist is really stuck trying to prove there is no invisible God. How are you going to do that? So you cannot prove that what you state is true. So it's a very feeble argument from the very get-go, especially when you get into the apologetics of all the proofs of God that have no better explanation than the truth of the Bible. Okay? And we have apologetics teachings online, right, John? We, those are online, right? So we have apologetics teachings online. You can take a look at that. Now, so that's a, a, a major flaw of atheism, a major flaw of agnosticism. You know, those people say, I don't really know if you can know if there's a God or not. Well, the only way you can be credible with that statement that we can't know is somehow you've got to attack the credibility of the Apostle John who says, but I know. I've seen him, I've heard him, I've touched him, I've talked to him, walked with him, been taught by him. I saw him die and I saw him risen. And now I understand the fulfillment of the prophecies. I, I saw the miracles. I saw the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the dead raised. I've seen all of that. I've had a glass of water in my hand. When I took a, a sip, it was wine. Done all that. I've been out at sea without him. And then he came and walked on the sea to get to me. Done all this stuff. Okay? I grieved the death of our friend Lazarus, only to hang out with him for several more years after his death. Okay? We've done these things. Okay? The Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, as he's pleading for his life at the end of the book of Acts to the Roman leadership, namely Agrippa in this case, he says to King Agrippa, he says to a king, you know the stuff I'm telling you because this stuff wasn't done in a corner. He's saying this, all the miracles are public displays. All the teachings were public displays. Everything was done not in secret rooms that we went out and said, guess what just happened in a secret room? This is all public display so that he could actually say to a king, you know what I'm talking about because none of this was done in a corner. And that king didn't go, I have no idea what you're talking about. He said this, you're almost persuading me to be a Christian. Okay? You cannot deny the public knowledge of the miraculous life of Jesus Christ. So, agnosticism would have to deal with the fact that we have credible people that paid with their lives recording the resurrection of Christ. And if Christ has risen from the dead, then the whole issue is settled. Right? All right. Now, now in verse 6, we read this. He said, Concerning zeal, I was persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. Now I want to talk about that for a moment. Concerning the righteousness that's in the law, he said I was blameless. So if this whole thing is a law-following thing, I'm going to be front row in heaven, no question about it. But this is the same Paul who showed that he realized how wrong his aim was. He's aiming at righteousness that comes from the law, and now he's realizing that was not the target. So we're going to talk about in a moment what, what was the purpose of the law then. If aiming for obedience to the law is not the target at all, then what was the purpose of it? Well, first of all, I want you to hear what he says in the first eight verses of Romans 8 about this. He says, Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Same thing he's saying in Philippians 3. 
For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. So he's saying there's a law of living in the spirit of Christ, which is freedom. And there's a law of, of, the, of the tablets of stone, of the commandments and all of that, that's sin and death. He said, for what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So this righteous requirement of the law that's got to be fulfilled, how did we fulfill it? It said not by walking it out, not by trying to fulfill it ourselves, but by walking according to the Spirit. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So is this stuff a big deal? He just said, listen, you're going to get involved with all sorts of stuff, your job, your family, all these things. But there's probably only really, none of those things probably have at stake life, death, heaven, hell. This is the stuff that's the life, death, heaven, hell stuff. So this is the stuff to make sure that everybody's considering at some point or another. Okay, it's like C.S. Lewis said, Christianity, if true, is of utmost importance. If not true, it's of no importance whatsoever. The only thing it can't be is mildly important, but that's how most people treat it. It's just something mildly important. It's the only thing it can't be is mildly important. Paul puts it this way. If you're carnally minded, it's death. Spiritually minded, it's life and peace. Is there bigger extremes than life and death? No. Okay. So to be spiritually minded in Christ is the life, to not be is the death. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God for it is subject for it is not subject to the law of God nor indeed can be so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God all right so when Paul walked according to the flesh and in Philippians 3 he said I when I walked according to the flesh here's my my bragging tribe of Benjamin Hebrew of Hebrews circumcised on the eighth day uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, or 2 Corinthians 12, he'll say, I was even beat up more than the other apostles, jailed more than the other apostles. I mean, what I went through for Christ, I went through at bigger extremes than all the other apostles. I have a resume that if you're fleshly minded, I have a resume that tops everybody else's. I am the most credentialed apostle, he'll say. But now that's all garbage. The only thing that matters is walking in the spirit uh, of Christ. The only thing that matters is Christ. So, verse 7, 7 through 9, Philippians 3. But, that, but what things were gained to me, those things of the flesh, those things that were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him. There's what we were talking about at the beginning. He says, all this is so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, how does one get to the point of saying all things that I ever pursued, everything that I valued now has no value whatsoever compared to now what I know of Jesus Christ? How do you get to that point? Well, I'm going to bring you to Matthew chapter 16. And I want you to see this progression of knowing Christ and then um, how the valuing the world can get in the way of that. There's some things that happen pretty rapidly to the Apostle Peter in Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to start 
and verse 13. I'm going to read through to verse 20 and then uh, break that down a little bit. So when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Now, in 55 years, there's never been a question that I think that I would deem as important as this one. Okay? To me, and all of my understandings, this is the most significant question I've ever heard asked that we've got to answer ourselves. But who do you say that I am? Never mind what anybody else says, never mind what you read, never mind the person you admire says, who do you say he is? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. I'm going to read on through 26. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now, as soon as Peter is called blessed, he opens his mouth one more time. Okay? And this is what he gets for it. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Okay? It's quite a moment. Okay? Who do people, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Peter, you're blessed. Okay? So now you're ready for this. I am going to be betrayed, killed, and raised again on the third day. No, you're not. Ain't letting that happen. Okay? And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Why? He says, you are an offense to me. For you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. So what's happening here? Well, in, from 13 to 20, you have the full disclosure of who Jesus is. He's not a prophet like John the Baptist. He's not a prophet like Elijah. He's not a prophet like Jeremiah. He's not any great, great person that's held in the highest of reverence by all the Jews. He's not that. He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's who he is. He's who the prophets prophesy about. He's why Jesus can say, all they ever prophesied about was me. All their teachings and writings and everything was always about me. The whole Old Testament was about me. Okay? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We get full disclosure in, in verses 13 through 20 of who Jesus is. He's receiving this recognition of his divinity of his unique, one-of-a-kind relationship with the Father. Then, in verses 21 to 23, we see that the very one who spoke that truth to Jesus still has the problem of walking in the flesh. Because when he hears the word death, he hears lose. You lost. You're not going to lose Jesus, right? Okay. And Jesus' rebuke of him is saying, listen, that only comes from a worldly mindset, and the father of the worldly mindset is Satan himself. Okay. The, fa the father of the worldly mindset is Satan himself. You don't have in, the mi in your mind the things of God. I think of Solomon's 
book of Ecclesiastes, where he concludes the whole treatise by saying, the conclusion of the matter, remember Ecclesiastes is the great book of research from the one who has the funds to pull it off and the wisdom to pull it off, okay? And his conclusion of all of his research of what it's like to be a human being on planet Earth, he says, if you're looking down at the Earth under the sun, it's all vanity of vanities. There's nothing there for you. That's what Peter just did. Peter just took his eyes off of the glory, looked down at the earthly reality and said, never letting you die, Jesus. Okay? And Jesus is saying, your revelation of me as the Christ, the Son of the living God, should allow you to understand the necessity of what I'm talking about. So with your head knowledge of who I am, you now got to get into your heart and realize that it's as simple as this. If I say this has to happen, then you should support it. You should be behind it. But what if I don't understand? Well, Peter, you're the same guy. You're the same guy that when I said, eat my flesh, drink my blood, you didn't understand that either. Okay, but you stuck with me, okay, and then when the Last Supper comes, he's going to realize, oh, it's bread and wine, okay. So, in training up Peter, Peter has a great moment, but because his focus is not on who he just said Jesus was, he gets the rebuke. So, we start with a full disclosure of who Jesus is, and even with that full disclosure, we see him valuing the world as far as Jesus going on living instead of dying, and then... How do we get a proper perspective on this dynamic? It's the next three verses. It says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What do you think they're thinking when they hear, take up your cross? He hasn't died on a cross yet. They don't know the significance of that. He's not risen from the dead. They don't know the significance of that. And now he's saying, pick up your instrument of execution and let's go. Okay? For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? What did Paul say in Philippians 3? I have the credentials to put me at the very top of mankind. Okay? I could gain the whole world. And, and Jesus says, but what if you lose your soul? So what does Paul then say in Philippians 3? Now that's all dung to me. It's all dung. Okay? Knowing Christ is everything because I have my soul intact. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come. Here's a, the credibility of, from Jesus' mouth. The Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels. And then he will reward each according to his works. As surely I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death. So they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So, with Paul talking about the value of knowing Christ surpasses all the riches of the world, all the position of the world that literally takes, all the value of the world takes the equivalence of dung compared to knowing Jesus Christ. We see that dynamic played out in Matthew 16. And then in verse 9, which is where Paul said, To, that he wants to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. And I want to unpack that a little bit. He says, I don't, it's not my own righteousness, but it's the righteousness that comes by faith. And one of the most important verses that I've ever come across for my understanding of this is, is Romans 1, 16 and 17. In those verses, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. If anybody ever asks you to define the gospel for them, give them, memorize this verse. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. It's from the very mouth of Paul. For the Jew first and also for the Greek, which is the same word to them as Gentile. Why? Why is... Why is um, the gospel so important to Paul. He says, for in it, the gospel, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. He says, so in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Okay? 
Now, this was the verse that converted Martin Luther. This is the verse that brought him from his Catholicism to realizing the righteousness of God that comes through faith, not a righteousness that comes from the law by performing good works. And this is what motivated him to stop torturing himself because Martin Luther was known for punishing his flesh because of its sinful condition. He would flagellate himself to punish himself. He'd roll around in the snow just trying to feel clean from his sin. He would be in confession multiple times a day, mostly confessing the same exact sin over and over and over again. And that sin that he would confess over again was that he's unable to fulfill the weightiest commandment of them all, which is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he would confess over and over again, I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it. I am guilty of violating the greatest and the weightiest command. He got kicked out of confession because he kept going back confessing that sin. He turned right back around and go, I'm still not loving him like I should. Okay, I need forgiveness for this. And he'd flagellate himself, he'd roll around in the snow, he would cry, climb the uh, Roman staircase, I can't pronounce its name without reading it, and I don't have it written down. And, uh, and the idea was to be on your hands and knees climbing the staircase to punish your body, you know, for your sin and everything. And it was on that staircase that he heard these words of this verse. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And he realized at that moment that he's been pursuing the righteousness of Martin Luther. I'm trying to be righteous. I'm trying to be righteous. I'm trying to be righteous. And I can't ever get any sense that I'm going to live up to God's standard whatsoever. Because what's his standard? Perfection, holiness. And he realized he can't do it. But these words, it's the righteousness of God that's revealed. And he realized and it, it's revealed from faith to faith. And then it all clicked for him. Through my faith, the righteousness of God is going to be revealed in me. There's nothing I can do except receive it. It's all I can do. Stop trying to do it on my own. Stop rejecting it. It's just receiving the righteousness of God. That's why Jesus had to live a perfectly righteous moral life from birth to death, from the womb to the tomb. Because that righteousness that he actually has from 33 years of moral perfection is now transferred to your account through faith. Okay, you already know that your sins are transferred to him. But what's taught far less is that his righteousness is transferred to you. Because remember, God didn't say you go to heaven for being sinless. He says you go to heaven for being holy and perfect, which is both the absence of sin and the presence of righteousness. Okay? So yes, he died for your sins. He got rid of the sin problem, but you're still left void of righteousness. So now he also imputes to your account Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness. So the gospel is the righteousness of God that's revealed how? From faith to faith. Now, so therefore, what's the purpose of the law? Paul anticipates this question in Romans. When he starts saying that the law is not going to get you righteous, only Christ can get you righteous, he's realized we're going to say, then why the law? So he tells us, says, the law served as a tutor for you. Okay, so what is it tutoring us in? Well, if you, if you look at it, the main parts of the law are, hey, don't covet, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your mother and father, all this. Now, it's like if you live your life going, hey, never killed anybody, never cheated on my spouse. It's like that's very low bar stuff. It's kind of hard to honor somebody that just didn't commit adultery and kill people, right? Okay? So in other words, you and I are called... To walk out life, and these are the two words I like using lately, in this believing loyalty. Have I used that on Wednesday night yet? Have you heard those two words? Believing loyalty to God. So what does loyalty look like? It's, it always looks like belief. What type of belief? The type of belief that shows you're loyal to the one who says, you call me Lord and you call me master and you do well for saying so because that's what I am. I am your Lord and Master. And Jesus will say, why do you call me Lord if you're not doing what I say? It's very hypocritical to not do what he says and then pray and say, dear Lord, 
He's like, no, either stop calling me Lord or start doing what I say, but there's no lordship that I have in your life if you're not doing what I say, right? And the things that I say are actually leading to your freedom. There's this incredible dynamic that being a bondservant to Christ is the freest life you can possibly live. Why? Because he designed you. He created you. And when you follow your creator, you're exactly who you're supposed to be. Okay? It's why when people build things like cars and things like that, they give you owner's manual so that you can maximize the benefit of that car, right? You want the maximum benefit of it. Your maximum benefit comes from you following this owner's manual, okay? So he says, the law was a tutor for you. And as I said, the law is kind of low bar stuff. It's like, I hope you don't brag that you're not a killer or an adulterer, right? It's like, so the law is there to saying, here's the bar that if you don't violate this stuff, you'll still be in believing loyalty. You certainly won't be perfect, but at least you're in believing loyalty. Why? Because you probably might have lied or stolen or did something if you weren't trying to walk out believing loyalty. Okay? So stay in this, this relationship of believing loyalty and following the law will allow for that. But it's not working in you a righteousness unto salvation. It's just trying to keep you in the ball game. Now Martin Luther gave these other purposes of the law. He says, well, there's a law there for civil order. Okay, you're going to need your red lights and stop signs and things like this. You're going to need law to have order in your society. So one of the purposes for God's law is order in their society. A second purpose of their law was to actually demonstrate what you can't do. So in other words, it's trying to provoke in you a need for salvation, that you can't do it on your own. So when you look at the law, you say, okay, so the standard is to be holy as God is holy and perfect as God is perfect. Then you look at the law and you do what Martin Luther did. I can't love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay? I've told lies. Uh, and Jesus ups the bar because he says, you don't have to actually murder somebody to be a murderer. You just got to be mad at them. You don't actually have to commit adultery to be an adulterer. You just have to want to commit adultery with them. So Jesus said the sin is in the heart, not in the actions, right? Okay? So the, so the law is there to show you empty yourself of self-capability. Um, You're not going to be able to get to heaven on your own. And the law is going to show you that. Okay? You're not going to be able to f follow this law. So it's a demonstration of what you can't do. And so ultimately, Martin Luther said, the major purpose of the law is to point you to Christ, to point to, to, to the fact that you have need, that you're not self-sufficient, you're not autonomous from God, you cannot live apart from him. There's got to be a relationship with him uh, that saves you. All right. Now, for Paul's love and enthusiasm for this new covenant this idea that somebody fulfilled the law on our behalf. And when the apostles, who are these Jewish followers, who know the Ten Commandments, they know about the 613 other laws, they know the demand for holiness and, 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 um, and perfection. And as they see that Jesus is instituting something new and they're starting to catch on that this guy is different, this is a different rabbi, these are not the teachings we've gotten from other rabbis, there's something different here, that provokes them to ask the question, what are the works that we're supposed to be doing? Clearly something's different. So what are the works that we're to do? And Jesus said this, the work for you to do is to believe on the one that God has sent. That's what fulfills the law for you. Now, what kind of belief? Because James is going to come along and go, don't you know the demons believe? And they shudder. So it's not an intellectual connect the dots, I get this whole born of a virgin, died, rose again on the third day, so clearly he must be him. No, it's not just belief, but it's a believing loyalty to him. Have you been loyal today? Does your knowledge of Jesus Christ lead you to have conversations that might be different because you're his and he's your master, he's your teacher, than you would have had if you didn't recognize him as your master and your teacher? Okay? To me, the ultimate test is this. The next time you get cut off, see if you're in believing loyalty or not. Okay? Okay. Because if you have nine fingers down, you're probably not walking in believing loyalty. Right? Okay? 
All right. Now. <laughs> All right. Then in 10 and 11, he said, for if when... Oh, that's Romans. Go back to Philippians 3, 10 and 11. It says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. So he says, if I may know him. I just want to know him. Now, this ought to be... So if I gave you all truth serum to drink and now you're... you're committed to the truth. And I said, why do you really want to go to heaven? Okay. If it's, I just want the peace. I just want to see the beauty. I just want to be where sin isn't anymore. All of that. I'm going to say, read Paul again. He says, everything is garbage to me except for what? Knowing him. Okay. Do you want to meet him? Okay. Do you want to know who he is? Do you want to actually not just study words on a page and, and, and have, live inside you and you get that sense of the living God inside you, but you actually now get the full manifestation of his presence? That you actually get to maybe have a conversations and understandings and ask your questions? And, and you know, I, I just think about... Um, you know, I, I, I was driving to work, I think it was yesterday morning, maybe the morning before it, and maybe some of you guys saw this too, but, you know, I'm, I'm driving, like I leave my house and it's dark, and by the time I get to work, it's light. It's like the sun's coming up, you know, as I'm going. But man, I'm cruising down 441, and I look to my left out east, and the sky was like I'd never seen a sunrise before, you know? And I called her, and I said, go out of the house and just look into the eastern sky, because the way the sun was hitting the clouds... She named the colors that were out there. I was just like, yeah, but it's pretty. That's all I know, right? It just looks good, okay? And, um, and then you think, just based on the law of cause and effect, whatever caused that beauty, by scientific law, has to be more beautiful than that, okay? Whatever causes beauty has to, by law, the cause of that beauty has to be greater than the beauty that you're observing. So how beautiful is the cause of beauty? Of all beauty, whatever you've looked at and just dropped your jaw and went, amazing. The one who made that is more beautiful than that. You know, King David said, I desire nothing more than to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. What did David know there? What did he know that he says, I just want to gaze at his beauty. It's all I want to do. Okay. So <clears throat> he says, listen, I just want to know him. And with the knowing him, the fellowship of his sufferings, okay? And then the power of his resurrection. That's the face-to-face. -face. In 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul says, listen, now you're looking at him like in a mirror dimly lit, but then face-to-face, -face. okay? That's what he's excited about. And he says, the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. One of the most important, I think, verses for us while we're on the earth, when we're suffering, is we like to talk to other people that have been through suffering, right? If you're really, really suffering and you say, can I talk to you? And somebody says, yeah, you can talk to me. And it says, well, can you relate? I'm really, really suffering now. If that person says, you know, I've been pretty lucky. I've never suffered a day in my life. Do you feel like you really want to pour out to them your sufferings? You're looking for somebody who can relate, right? Who can actually relate the feeling that you're in right now share in the, the, the in the suffering empathize with your feelings and that's what hebrew says one of the great things about jesus is our priest because he became a man to feel what we feel to to suffer like we suffer to know exactly what it feels like when we pray from from tears and from having our face on the ground in ultimate despair and jesus can say you know what i hear you and i remember feeling just like that i get it Okay, I get it. It means more when there's fellowship of sufferings. And the one who Paul, part of Paul's resume is, I've been in jail more than the other apostles. I've been beaten more than the other apostles. I've been left for dead more than the other apostles. And then that guy who's so familiar with suffering and also was caught up to the third heaven to see what it's all about, 
So he's an expert on a view of heaven. He's expert on suffering. That guy says this. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. And that's not a guy who's had an easy life. He's saying the beatings, the jail, the near-death experiences, the rejections, all of that ain't worth comparing to what I saw up there. Okay? That's why last chapter we read, I don't know if I'm going to live or die but I sure hope I die. Be better by far to go and be with the Lord. Now, that is not an invitation to go and die, is it? Because he said, if God has me remain, it's for service to him. So if God has you wake up tomorrow morning, there's stuff to do. There's stuff for you to do. Your Christ's workmanship that was created in Christ Jesus to do good works. It's it's Christ in you who, who wills and, and equips you to do these good works. He puts the will in you and the ability to do these good works in you. So there's a purpose, major purpose here for us. Now, verse 12. He says, not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on. So this is the reason to keep on going. He says, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. So in other words, when Christ met me on that road to Damascus, whatever plans he had for me and making himself known to me, he says, that's why I press on. It's because I want to take hold of the things which Christ Jesus took hold of me. There's a reason he took a hold of me, and I want to make sure I'm fulfilling those reasons that he took hold of me. 13. Brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So he knows that there's a goal. He knows that there's a prize. He knows that there's a reason for all of this. And he tells the Corinthians church in 1 Corinthians 9, starting in 24, about at the end of life, there's a prize, there's a goal, there's all of this for, for the time that you spent on the earth. He says this, do you not know that those who run in a race all run? So he's comparing our life on earth to a race and we're all running it. He says, but one receives the prize. So what should you do with your life then? He says, run in such a way that you may obtain it. So imagine you're in this race with tons of people. How should you go about living your life? Run as if only one's going to win the prize and, and you want to obtain that prize. That's how you should be serving the Lord. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown. So they're doing all this stuff to win a race just to get a crown that perishes, right? He says, but we do it for an imperishable crown. Five times in Paul's letters, he mentions different ways to win crowns, different crowns, okay? Therefore, I run this way. This is how I run based on this truth. He says, not with uncertainty. He says, I know what I know. God has revealed things to me, and he's actually made me apostle to write this stuff down so that you know the things that I know. So I'm not running with uncertainty. I'm not hoping something's true that I'm telling you. Just like John said, I've seen them, I've heard them, I've touched them. I don't have doubts here. I'm telling you what actually happened, and there's no explanation for everything I've told you about in 21 chapters of my gospel, and now these uh, three letters that I'm writing. There's no question I know what I know what I know. And when they try to shut me up from telling it to you and threaten to kill me, I tell them, bring it on, because I'm not going to stop talking about it. And that's true of all of these apostles including John, who they tried to kill once. So he says, I'm not running this race with uncertainty. And then this is how I fight the fight, not as one who beats the air. I'm not going through the motions here. He says, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I've preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So he's saying, listen, everything I'm preaching to you, I'm making sure that I had the discipline to do myself. Because otherwise I'm disqualified, right? 
Otherwise, I'm disqualified. So everything I'm saying to you, I've disciplined myself to make sure I'm doing it myself. Okay, so for 28 years, I've been directing teenagers, you should be reading your Bible every day. The day you miss reading the Bible is the day you're not who you're supposed to be because something about that word in you was supposed to take place that day and it's not because you didn't read the word. Now imagine if I'm not reading the word every day and I'm talking like that. Okay, God would stamp this big stamp on my forehead that says hypocrite. And even if you can't see it, I would know it in my own soul, correct? Okay, so he says, listen, don't disqualify yourself. Discipline yourself. That's why we have things called spiritual disciplines, okay? And I don't know why they're called spiritual disciplines because these are opportunities for fellowship and joy with the Lord, right? They're opportunities for fellowship and joy with the Lord. Back to Philippians 3, 15. Therefore, let, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. So in just two verses, twice he says, be of the same mind, be of the same mind. And that reminds me of one of my favorite passages that we just covered last week, Philippians 2, 5 through 10. There Paul starts this incredible passage by saying, have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Twice here he says, be of the same mind. What same mind should we be about? The same mind that was in Christ Jesus. Well, what was the mind that was in Christ Jesus? It said, who, Christ Jesus, who, being found in the appearance, Christ Jesus, who, did something nice. He was not found in appearance. I'm thinking of something. Okay, here it is. Who being in the form of God, that's what I'm trying to say. Who being in the very form of God did not consider his equality with God. So what does he have? Equality with God. He did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, he never used that against people. Do what I say because I'm God, right? He didn't use it as something to be grasped, but rather he humbled himself. How low did he humble himself? The very one who's equal with God. How much did he humble himself? Well, it says, well, he became a bondservant. Now, it would have been drastic enough just to say he became a man. Okay, somebody once said, it's more dignified for a man to become a worm than for God to become a man. It's a bigger drop off for God to be man than man for, to be worm. He says, but he humbled himself, not taking the form of a man, Paul says, he took the form of a bondservant the lowest of men. He took the form of a bondservant and became obedient. What in the world could else should die? The Almighty God become obedient too. It says he became obedient to death. The very curse that he had initiated on Adam and Eve, he now becomes obedient to. He became obedient to death. And not just any kind of death, because my great-grandmother, when I was a kid, my cousin had a birthday party. It was like five or six, turning five or six. And she's 90-something sitting in a rocking chair at this birthday party. And all of a sudden, she nodded off and never woke up. Most peaceful death you can imagine. She's, here's how she died. No sickness, no hospital stays, no diseases, no tragedies. Just fell asleep, died. Now, God, when he decides, listen, I'm going to become obedient to death, he could have chose that death. I'll fall asleep when I'm 33 and never wake up. That'll be my death to save the world. But no, it says he became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Now, we started here in the very form of God equal with God. And then he humbles himself, so he's lower. He becomes not just a man, but a bondservant of a man. A, an obedient bondservant of a man, and his obedience was to that which is our greatest potential enemy, death. He becomes obedient to death. And then the, here's our word. Therefore, all right, because he humbled himself so low, therefore God has highly exalted him. Isn't that the teaching of the Bible? You humble yourself, God exalts. You exalt yourself, God humbles, okay? 
Well, because he humbled himself so low from such a lofty position, it says, therefore, God also highly exalted him. How high? Gave him the name that's above every name. What's that name? I don't think so. I think it's Yahweh. I think it's Yahweh. I think that's the name that's above every name. They won't even put the vowels in it. They won't even keep the pen that wrote the name. They destroy it. And here's why I think it's the name Yahweh. First of all, it says he gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus. And I think Paul's equating Jesus and Yahweh, same guy. And that at the name of Jesus, and here's why I think it, because now it says at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and below the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you go to Isaiah 45, four or five times in that chapter, God says this, I'm the Lord and there is no other. I'm the Lord and there is no other. I'm the Lord and there is no other. And the last time he says this, he says, I'm the Lord and there is no other. And I swear, I take an oath by my name that to me, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. He's the Lord and there is no other. And every knee will bow and tongue confess. Paul says, he was given that name that's above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the God of Isaiah, that Jesus is the Lord that every knee bows to. Jesus is the, the God that every tongue will confess, that he is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, and remember how that passage started? Hey, have that same mindset in you. What mindset? God become a bondservant obedient to death. What are you willing to do? Okay? What does your humility look like this week? Okay? Where are you walking in pride and where are you kind of demanding in your thoughts and in your actions that you want to be exalted by people? Paul says, no, have the mindset of Christ. Remember the Last Supper? They all eat that dinner with dirty feet. Because none of them want to think that they're the one that should be washing the feet. And then their Lord and Master rises up, takes off his robe of authority, puts on a servant's towel, pours water into a basin, which has got to be stopping their hearts, going, what in the world is he doing? This is such a shame on us that our Lord and Master is now doing the job that none of us, all of us thought we were too good to do. And now he's doing it. Okay? And he gets down at their dirty, smelly feet and washes them. He makes sure that Judas Iscariot betrays him with clean feet. Isn't that remarkable? Okay, now to wrap up. He says, be of the same mind. Be of that mind. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. In other words, they follow their lusts and their urges. They don't follow a discipline. Their glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So he says, he will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. Well, in Matthew 16, we finish that passage of Peter doing great, you're the Christ on the living God, then doing something where he's called Satan, and then Jesus saying, here's where Peter missed it, this walk with me is about picking up your cross every day and following me and those things, and then it finished by saying, hey, there's some people standing here now that won't taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, that's, a, that's the end of the chapter, so a lot of people stop reading there. But if you keep reading, it says this. Now, after six days, 
Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. So now think of what Paul just said in Philippians. We're going to get rid of these bodies and be conformed to his glorious body. And it says this, he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. This is the idea of your transformation one day. It's going to be like his glorious body. Here's his glorious body. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to him talking with them. All right? So there's a, a very brief glimpse. In fact, if you read Mark's account of it, when Matthew says, hey, bright white, um, anybody here own a laundromat? Because you're about to get dissed. Because Mark says, the white was brighter than any launderer could ever bleach. Okay, so there's some shade of white that we've never seen before that Jesus' glory is, is, is looking like at. And it says, God is working in you to be conformed to that glorious image. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul will repeat the same thought when he'll say, star differs from star in glory, and so will each one of us differ from each other in glory. So what adds to your glory? You walking out, believing loyalty to the Lord fulfilling what the workmanship that he created you to be. Amen? So, Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this group, Lord, and I pray that you just allow uh, your word to fall on them like the, the rain falls on the ground and produces wonderful fruit and herbs, Lord, that are so useful. We pray that uh, that happens tonight. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.